0: Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So it's been a few weeks since I've done a live show. I was out of town and then actually had to extend my trip because I got a little bit ill, thankfully doing much better now. But then uh, when I came back, there was also a holiday. So it's been um, several weeks, about four weeks since I've done A live show and so it is interesting first of all just um, even though I've done this so many times when you haven't done something for a little while coming into the studio today I could feel that difference of just uh, a few weeks of breaking a routine so uh, we really are creatures of habit but it's nice to be back in the studio and back doing the show Um, and because I didn't do a show for a few weeks as far as the books of the week go I'm a few uh, weeks behind in presenting the books. Now, I'm not sure exactly how today's show is going to go. In front of me, I have um, all four books that I've read these past few weeks, and I'll start off with two of them, and I might do them all today's show, but going to kind of see how it goes. So let's just uh, get right into it. The first two books, the reason why I'm going to do them together is that they are both by the same author and that is Marcel Proust and so um, the first book is finding time again by Marcel Proust and this is the seventh and final volume of his book in search of lost time which is um, really a, a tremendous piece of work and art and I was excited to to read the seventh and final volume I actually went back and looked to see when I read the first one, which is Swan's Way, and that was actually back in January of 2021. So uh, I read them over about three years, but especially this year, I think I've read four of them, if I'm not mistaken. So got most of it um, done this this year. But um, the other book that I will is also it's a collection of essays by him. So the first one is a book of fiction. The second one is uh, nonfiction called Days of Reading by Marcel Proust. And in this first, he gives his admiration for um, John Ruskin, who was a art critic, and how he was impacted by him, and then also shares some of his reflections, Marcel Proust, of enjoying reading, especially in childhood and that experience and what reading is like. Uh, and then the, the last essay I found quite interesting because it's, called Swan explained by Proust. And so Swan is, that's one of the main characters or one of the characters in this novel in search of lost time. But the first book is called Swan's Way. And it's some of his own thoughts on um, the book and the way he's writing the book. And and since I'm actually talking about this now, I'll, I'll touch on this and then come back to finding time again, but he is sharing. And now, as I mentioned, he, it's a seven part book essentially or seven books make up the whole work Uh, and he published it over many years and wrote it over many years even uh, at the end of his life he was in some ways revising some of the last um, volumes some say it was not finished his brother actually helped in the final editing and and production of it but so he wrote this over many years and he had a a difficult life in ways that he um, had asthma or types of respiratory issues that made it hard for him to be outside a lot of times. So he uh, wrote, a lot of times he spent just writing his his books, Um, but he wrote this over many years. But he says here that he has written this larger, he's working on this larger piece of work, but unfortunately he says they weren't being published and that Way where he can release them all at once. So he says, "I am like someone who has a tape, tapestry too large for present-day apartments, who, and who has been obliged to cut it up. So he has to cut up his uh, work into seven volumes, and he shares in this kind of like essay and some thoughts on the book how much his work is about involuntary memory, and that's a a big theme in the book, uh, or in the books. I mean, sometimes I." I say book or books, really, it's one piece of work, but in seven different volumes. But this theme of involuntary memory comes up often. Even people who have not read Proust might be familiar with one of the famous scenes of involuntary memory that's in the first book, Swan's Way, where he has a Madeline, kind of a cookie, and he dips it in tea and takes a bite. And as soon as he takes this bite of the tea-soaked Madeline, he is remembering and he gets he has this involuntary memory of his aunt who was sick um, and being with her and then all these childhood memories come back and it's his whole uh, expression of those memories and so this madeline um, scene is a a fairly well-known one and one that even you see in in movies are brought up as a kind of example of involuntary memory and so he says And you see this in the book as well, but in this uh, essay or uh, short type of um, analysis or thoughts on the book, he shares how he thinks it's involuntary memories that artists should go towards because those are uh, more real or authentic. So if I ask you, tell me about, you know, what did you do last Sunday? And you think about it and you recreate that memory. um, He's saying that it's more powerful, intense when somehow in, an involuntary memory comes up that you are not even sure how it came up. Sometimes you might know, like in this tea-soaked Madeline, but sometimes you might not be even aware of why a memory pops into your head. And he says those are in a way more full or rich and that an artist should actually try to capture those and then um, share them in their work. So I think that's uh, quite interesting. And I wish actually I found more... Writings like this of him himself discussing or describing his work because I found it fascinating to read that. So, that was in in Days of Reading, which is by Marcel Proust, includes a few essays that I mentioned about reading, the joys of reading, which was quite interesting as well. But especially for me, that last essay on his own thoughts on Swan's Way uh, being published back in November 1913. So, coming back to this last seventh volume finding time again and as i've mentioned you maybe have heard me talk about this series before the plot is not so significant there's not really uh, you know some intense things that you're waiting to see happens every so often you know there's love and romance and things that do happen that have some level of uh, interest and you do get surprised at times but really it's not that much about uh, the plot even Um, In that, again, his thoughts on Swan's Way, he says, young writers with whom I am otherwise in sympathy advocate a succinct plot with few characters. That is not my conception of the novel. So he doesn't think of it about these, you know, a few people and some interesting things happening or being all about plot. A lot of what you read in these novels is um, things moving in a very slow way. Um, I, I forgot which volume it was, but... And one of them, essentially, almost 200 pages, or I think it was maybe even more, is just one dinner party. Imagine 200 pages being written about a mehmuni that you've, you've went to. Uh, hard to imagine, but, and it's not like some crazy things are happening and crazy incidents. It's mostly about the conversation and then his insights and, and thoughts on, on the conversation. So we, we see in this book, uh, in some ways, we assume it's him, himself, Marcel Proust, at some level, kind of like an autobiographical novel to a degree but it's not totally him in one of the uh, novels you do hear someone saying his name is Marcel but that's really the only times you see that but even people who analyze the book would say it's not necessarily purely him I'm likely is parts of him maybe even parts of him are in other characters Um, but it follows him throughout his life and one theme that comes up, and it's this interesting to me, like meta type of uh, way of looking at things, is he wants to be a writer, or he thinks he might have talent for a writer, and at times he doubts his talent, but one theme that comes up is his his laziness or his inability to get himself to write. That keeps coming up. Um, but then in this uh, final volume, we see that he has this moment He actually is doubting himself. You read someone else's work and thinks that he doesn't have the talent the way this person does to to capture things. He had been at similar types of dinner parties that this person is describing, but they're being described in a way that he doesn't think he can or has been able to. Uh, Then he has this moment where, again, it's about involuntary memory, where uh, three different things happen at once that recount three different involuntary memories And it's at this moment that he has this extremely joyful feeling where he realizes this is what i'm supposed to write this is um what my work is supposed to be is capturing these types of involuntary memories and writing them and then he is now quite older you don't get an exact um, number of his age I, i don't recall but He is now struck with this some anxiety of will i have enough time to write my my book will i have enough time to write all these things down death can come at any time for any of us and he's also of ill health and so there is this anxiety he has of will i get to write it and so the type of meta part which is interesting is that this itself is this this piece of work and someone who has obviously written depending on the version, you know, sometimes I've seen it as 3,000 or 4,000 pages of a, a book. And so he's actually done the work and here we are at the end of the book, but he's contemplating, will I be able to, to write my book and write um, the things that I, I need to write? So that was quite fascinating. And it was a, of course, because it's seven books, each one several hundred pages, it, it takes quite some time to read it itself. interesting thought on the the way we experience time or what we do with our time Um, but when you get to the end there is a very satisfying understanding and feeling of what this is all about you see various characters who change throughout the book sometimes for example being in a favorable light in um, society and sometimes falling out of favor or how they shift and change some people who were not very respected now years later we see them being very respected and seen as even let's say incredible uh, actress or incredible or talented writers when they weren't or they were scoffed at before even the way he describes aging because he being sick was out of society for a while and then when he describes after this epiphany he has of how he's gonna write his books he walks into this dinner party And he is struck, he says, almost as if people are wearing a disguise because they've gotten so much older. And so he's describing them as wearing these disguises until really it's dawning on him that it's those same people he knew, but now they are older. And then also he sees how they relate to him and how he used to go to these dinner parties and he was one of the young ones and he was talked to in a certain way. And now they talk to him quite differently because of his advanced age and how he's realizing his own aging and his own approach to his mortality because of that and, and that type of experience. Um, reading the seven books, other themes that come up often uh, that, that for me were quite striking was this experience of your imagination of someone or something being better than the real thing. Even the way he often talks about love is that when you have the person or when you're with them, you don't love them, but it's before you have them or you imagine them that you love them, or when you're jealous of them, that's what makes you love them or feel that love. And, you know, I have some thoughts on that. It could be, um, I think that is true to a degree that we do idealize and build things up, and then we might not savor the actual experience or enjoy the actual experience the same way. For example, in one of the earlier books, he is, has hears about this actress who is supposed to be phenomenal and wants to go see her, and when he finally sees her, it's a really interesting scene where he first thinks it's her, but it's not her. Then he thinks, okay, this can't be her because it's not very good. And he finds out that's actually her. And he's he's just so disappointed and deflated. and He can't believe this was this woman that he had idealized. And we see him, that, that was an actress and, and more about her acting ability that he was idealizing. But we see him idealize several women um, throughout the book. And then they they fall out of favor once he gets to know them or has is either becomes friends with them or becomes their lover. He's he changes that type of perspective and soon enough they become um, almost meaningless for him. He forgets them. But while he is with them and the jealousy he experiences, we see how intensely he he feels about them. Um, There's also this very um, heavy theme of homosexuality. Now, when you read about most people's accounts of him, it was pretty open that he that he was homosexual. That people were aware of it, but it was still in a time where it was not uh, as comfortable or as easy for someone to be open about that. So he writes a lot about this theme. Even one of the the books is called Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, these themes of homosexuality and often presented in a negative way or looked at it in a negative way and even his commentaries at times are are negative and that's uh, can be seen in a lot of different ways was that his own um, difficulties with his own sexuality was that a way of showing that he was not was it just some insights on that but at the same time when you look at it historically he presented many what can be called queer individuals men and women who were um, not uh, heterosexual and who had different types of sexual experience or sexual identities and so some people will comment on how that was itself something uh important that introducing queer characters even if they were at times presented in a um, negative light or um, presented in a certain way nonetheless they were present and so that itself is important so um you know I, i really enjoyed reading these seven books as i mentioned over a long period of time i'm not sure if i now in hindsight wish i read them almost consecutively in a very short period of time that might have made it stick in a certain way between um, the readings but nonetheless highly recommended anyone who enjoys literature and would like to read one of the what's sometimes considered one of the greatest pieces of literature that we have a uh, very a long experience but a very meaningful one i would highly recommend it so This was Finding Time Again by Marcel Proust, and the whole volume or the whole book is called In Search of Lost Time. Another book I was discussing is his uh, series of essays called Days of Reading, also by Marcel Proust. All right, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. As I mentioned, playing some catch up with Books of the Week. So... Um, did those two by Marcel Proust. Uh, the next one that I read was a book called Ikigai um, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life by Hector Garcia and Francesc Morales. Ikigai. I K I G A I. And um, I actually came across this concept seeing a few episodes of a Netflix documentary. On blue zones and maybe you've seen it but blue zones are these areas and some researchers found five areas and um, five different uh, I think they're all in different countries that have the long the most people or higher proportion of people living to be over 100 years old so in a way these were seen as places that have people living longer one Uh, is in Okinawa, Japan, one is in Sardinia, Italy, one is actually in Loma Linda, California, where there is a group of Seventh-day Adventists who are living there. One is in Costa Rica, the Nicoya Peninsula, and one is in Ikaria, Greece. And I saw the one that talked about uh, Okinawa, Japan, which is um, a small kind of island area, and people there tend to live to a very old age and live again more people live hundred to hundred there than we see in other places um, and there was this theme or this concept of Ikigai which is having a purpose for life that was very important and a big part of their culture there and so that's how I came across this concept and wanted to read the book now uh, my experience of the book itself was I thought it was going to be much more heavily focused on this concept of Ikigai, the finding purpose in life and what does that mean and, and all of that. And there was some about that, but a lot of the book was also just in general about what these people in these blue zones do, especially this particular one in Japan, what they do to to live a long life or what they think what scientists and researchers have found may contribute to it. So um it was a little bit different than i expected even there was long chapters on different types of exercises for example yoga and even showing yoga poses or tai chi and different uh, techniques and exercises that people do that are common in this area but that can also be helpful. And so not that that was necessarily bad it was um, still meaningful to read those but again it was different than what i was expecting the book to be primarily focused on this concept which is the title of the book um so talking on that some of these themes of living longer and what we can do to live longer uh one thing i that stood out to me in seeing these different concepts and of course in some ways it's going to seem very intuitive and obvious. But I think in Western society, we often are so much more fixated on quick fixes and on fixes after the fact, for example. Okay, find this pill that'll make you live forever. Or if you, you know, take this supplement, it's going to get rid of this bad thing in your body and you'll live longer. But what you tend to see is that the people who live longer and live healthier, longer lives, it's not that they have these intense... Uh, quick fixes that they do that help them it's that they are doing things on a daily basis it's part of their habits and routines and rituals it's not something that sometimes pops up or when a problem pops up they go and try to fix it in this way that they figured out it's that they they live in accordance with some principles some habits that then contribute to their overall well-being and health and so i know that sounds obvious as I said, you know, we, we think that obviously it's going to be these small things, but I still think it's a very Western type of mindset that we often are looking for these quick fixes, or we don't think, um, that it's going to be these smaller things are going to add up to make the difference. We look for those huge, big things that will make all the difference. Um, even at times I felt when I was seeing these documentaries, when you see how it's presented, somebody's like, okay, there's this, this, um, purple sweet potato that might be helpful and it probably is but i think it sometimes feels to me that we're looking for this one ingredient that's going to be the reason they're living longer but it's probably not it's going to be a confluence of many different factors that contribute to it Um, but what was interesting is seeing the the documentary so i saw it in video but also reading about people in these areas and especially this one in japan they are staying active throughout life. And that's something that we, in general, first of all, in places like, especially Los Angeles, we tend to not be as active or don't have to be as active in our day-to-day life. We might sit a lot for our work, then we might drive places and get there easily, and then you know back to sitting somewhere else and having some kind of leisure. Whereas what you see is people there in Okinawa, Japan, They are quite active throughout life. You see 80-year-olds who are waking up every morning to go garden, and they are doing the, the not intense, but it's light, but constant movement of gardening and doing those types of things. Or even their furniture is quite different in a way that's much lower. So every time they have to sit and stand, it's almost like they're doing a deep squat where... Um, It's another indication of sometimes things being more comfortable are actually worse for us in the long term to make us not as strong and weaker over time. Even they discuss how in Japan or in the the Japanese language, there isn't a word that means retire the same way it does in the English language, like no longer working, no longer doing something. And and you see that people, uh, even into old age, feel they have some kind of purpose or something they're doing. So they might be 85 years old, but they still have a garden and sell their vegetables to other people or to some stores that then will sell it for them or whatever it is. They're somehow contributing. They're not uh, done with life. And I think that's quite important, something that also you do see in, in a Western mindset, I think. It could even come from a type of capitalistic mindset where so much is emphasized on work and especially that work usually is for someone else. You work at a company and really you get a salary but the company is the one that um, gets the better end of the deal or if anything you're trying to work less. That's kind of a mindset we have because of Um, Our work usually not being for us in some way or in some deeper way. And so the thought is the ultimate life is one where you're no longer working or you no longer have to do anything. But really in a type of use it or lose it type of way, when we don't do anything, it's bad for us. And I see that we often do this in general, but with our older Um, relatives and loved ones, we think, okay, if we want to give them a good life, let them not have to do anything. So everything is taken care of for them and they have to just sit there and relax and enjoy life. And in a surface type of way, that sounds nice, but we see that it's actually killing them. We're hurting them by not letting them be active, not letting them feel productive and involved or that they're doing something. We're actually hurting our loved ones and quite literally slowly killing them you're going to die sooner if you don't have anything that you feel your life is about or that you are doing. Um, So I think that was quite uh, important and interesting, but to see how active they are and somebody's being very shocked that seeing this 90-year-old woman is playing games and having fun um, and she seems very much alive and it's because that spirit of being alive was never taken away or she never stopped living in that way. Uh, Some other Um, things or principles that come up, they have something called an 80% rule, which is basically eat until you're 80% full. And so of course, there's no way to exactly measure that. But it's this mindset that when you're eating to not eat until you're totally full, eat until you're feeling like you're almost full and then stopping there. So they will even say this before meals or remind themselves of this this basic principle. Uh, But coming back to this theme, again, this Ikigai, which is the title of the book itself, it's about having a purpose in your life. And so even into old age, it's not that people think, well, I stopped working and having this specific job. So now my life no longer has a purpose. They always continue having that purpose. And so they describe it in a variety of ways. And they have some charts in the book that gives you some idea of how to find that, and for each of us to find that ikigai. Because it's not something that's one for everyone, it's something that you have to discover yourself, um, which is reminiscent of Viktor Frankl's work, which is also included in the book. But basically, it's there's four different components and a few different ways to look at it. What in, one is, what do you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and what you are good at. So trying to find those four things, where does that intersect for you? What do you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for and what you are good at they also express this as passion mission vocation profession so finding this intersection of those things passion mission vocation profession all of those intersect in a way to um, form your ikigai and again it's going to be different for each person you have to find your own personal purpose and meaning and again, the sense of I have something I'm living for makes people more likely to live longer. We feel like there's something for us to uh, to continue doing. And as I mentioned, the authors themselves say that they were inspired by Viktor Frankl, who was the author of Man's Search for Meaning and also created Logotherapy, a type of therapy that revolved around helping people find their meaning in life, that this existential question was the cause of a lot of suffering when we didn't know or we're not living uh, a meaning in our life. And Viktor Frankl similarly says that it's not the same for everyone, that it's not a question that we ask life, what is the meaning of life? It's a question that life asks us, what is your meaning uh, for life? And so that we have to each find that ourselves. And so the book does get into Viktor Frankl, his life and his work for several pages and his development of logotherapy very much related to this concept of ikigai. I also became familiar with Morita therapy in the book, which was uh, similar to logotherapy in some ways, which is also a purpose-centered therapy that was created around the same time as Frankel's logotherapy by Shomo Morita. And so um, that was also discussed in the book. And, and the book also gets into things like finding flow, that psychological concept of optimal experience when you're so engaged in activity that you essentially get lost in it because it's in a good way, completely consuming you. You even lose uh, your sense of self. You can forget to eat or sleep or drink or go to the bathroom because you're so consumed by what you're doing and to look for things um, that get you in that state of flow and also to try to create that state of flow. Uh, They talk about, for example, multitasking and how that totally interferes with flow. You can't get into flow if you're trying to do three different things at once. And we know that when you try to do three different things at once, you're not doing them all at once. You're switching in between and actually are far less efficient than if you did them one at a time. But we tend to think we're being more productive, but actually it slows us down. So, um, you know, this concept of uh, Ikigai is very important also. Not only is that purpose of life important, they they say that in these blue zones that they've looked at, there are a few keys that they've recognized to longevity. And those are diet, exercise, finding a purpose in life, which is this ikigai, and forming strong social bonds. And you also see that in this Japanese um, town where they have these, uh, I can't, I'm not sure if I'm saying what... M-A-O-I, maoi these small social groups um, that they meet regularly several times a week they support one another even financially they all donate to it and if someone is in need they support each other but this sense of having a um, social connected life moi moai uh, is something that's a informal but very important part of their community is having these social bonds so we see that those Those different factors, diet, exercise, having a purpose in life and forming strong social ties. The researchers who have looked at these individuals who live um, long lives and healthy lives tend to have those four qualities. But to me, I was drawn again by this ikigai um, concept, which I think is so important for us to find our own purpose of life and to recognize that it's something that also is not one thing it could evolve over time it could be some type of work that you're doing then it might be your family it could be multiple things but recognizing that having that purpose is very important for living a long life and living a healthy life all right let's go to our last commercial break we'll be right back welcome back Uh, the last book i'll discuss tonight is a confession by leo tolstoy Um, So Leo Tolstoy, as you likely know, is a famous Russian novelist, wrote the books War and Peace and Anna Karenina, amongst others. And in this book, A Confession, it is a short type of autobiographical essay um, where he recounts an existential crisis he experienced uh, around his early 50s and goes through his thought process of trying to Uh, understand or figure out is there a meaning to life what does that mean and to come to terms with this now it's interesting um the books that i talked about today in uh, in search of lost time it's thinking about life in a certain way and then the ikigai of course is about purpose in life and then here we are looking at a great thinker leo tolstoy and his own existential crisis and trying to understand um, what is if there is any meaning to life. Now, in the back of the book, the copy I have, it says that because of this book, it led to his excommunication from the church, which I did read about that he was excommunicated from, um, I think it was the Russian Orthodox Church. I could not find that quite confirmed in other um, accounts. He was excommunicated. I don't know if it was specifically for this book uh, that he wrote. But anyway, nonetheless, um, he starts off, and maybe this could be part of why he would be excommunicated amongst other things he says throughout the book that he was he was baptized and brought up in orthodox christian faith but by the age of 18 um, he no longer believed in any of the things that he was taught so at this young age he no longer no longer really believed in the religious things that he was taught and then he shares his experience becoming a famous writer and he says that he he moved away from religion, but he kind of he moved towards what he calls perfection or trying to go towards perfection. Uh, he shares these years, though, writing and he becomes famous and makes lots of money and enjoys life in many ways, but he says it was very empty in a way. And he also shares how uh, all of pe- the people like him who are writing it was as if they were saying, I have something to share, I have something to say, but I don't know what that is. And so he shares about his experience going through this and, and again, feeling this emptiness of it and struck with this existential crisis, which in a way he's writing about now, where he was trying to then understand what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And he shares some great minds, their thoughts on it from Socrates to uh, even the Buddha um, and how his own conclusion, which was that, okay, if life is nothing and just ends in death, and there's nothing more than that, then life is meaningless. And so I, you know, of course, he's a mind greater than mine, um, but at times I was not sure I followed the, the logic quite as clearly as he was stating it, that if life ends with death and all life ends with death, then life is meaningless, if there's no way to connect it to something bigger or greater or something this finite into the infinite. And so nonetheless, he, he says that after this logical type of exploration, he came to this point and this conclusion that, okay, life is meaningless, even that life is evil because of that. And then so he says that he considers based on that four possible attitudes that we can have um, when we consider this dilemma. The first one is ignorance. So this is in some ways, something like ignorance is bliss. So, if one is oblivious to this, the fact that death will be approaching and life is, um, in this way, meaningless, then life can possibly be bearable. And he says many people might be that way, but he himself can't be. He can't um, become ignorant of something he already knows. Kind of the curse of knowledge. Once we know something, we can't unknow it. So he says that's the, the first possible attitude we can have once we come to this conclusion that life is meaningless. The second one he describes as Epicureanism, which is essentially kind of like hedonism, just, well, enjoy good things while you can. Enjoy the good life as long as you can while you're still here. But he says this would be empty. And he also says we have to recognize most people don't have this experience. And nonetheless, it's going to come to an end which again, to me, something coming to an end doesn't necessarily mean it becomes meaningless, but that that was the way he explained it. The third one, and, and kind of as we talk about um, things being kind of a trigger warning because it includes suicide, he says that the, he thinks actually the most intellectually honest response is suicide. If you know that death is inevitable and that there is no God and God doesn't exist and there's nothing meaningful after that, then why waste time, essentially? And so he shares that this in a way he thinks of as the, at this time of his understanding, the most intellectually honest response to this understanding. He says that he himself might be too afraid or cowardly to take this action. So he hasn't done it, but in some ways he thinks it might be the most logically consistent. And then lastly, he says that we can... uh, basically is hold on living so despite knowing this this way that it is just to continue uh, living in this hopeless way without god and so he says in essence he's living that fourth way and in some ways he then also goes on to challenge maybe what he could be thinking so he is in this type of haze of this existential crisis and he describes that's how he's feeling for some time even you know all parts of life become meaningless even his kids in a way he's like well even loving my kids, if it's to then raise them to live in this type of meaningless life, what's the point? Why would I even do that to them? So he shares going through this, if this life ends with death, then what's what's the point? Um, he then shares, he tries to understand talking to intellectual people, reading the works of intellectuals and even uh, people who are religious, and, and he's, he's unsatisfied, and he says that he essentially starts to find some meaning where he thinks there might be some meaning, in those people who go on living their lives with meaning. And he makes this distinction between essentially the more poor or unlearned individuals who are just, as he describes it, essentially working and going through their lives, but seem to have more meaning um, and fulfillment in their life. And so he says the the people of his own type of class, he actually doesn't see anything noble in how they um, are living their life and who they are. And so he actually connects more with the the more working class types of people. He then goes on to share that he, uh, for I think it was several years, he does a kind of deep dive into the church and he starts going to church and going through all the actions of people who go to church from fasting to communion to um, all the different things that going to mass Uh, almost every day and he he felt some type of connection with this but he says that over time he could it was almost like he was fooling himself he could not connect to this either and realize there this can't be right and he he went away from that Uh, and you know he's sharing this type of experience of trying to make sense well is it from reason that he's going to figure things out but he says you really can't and he says that there's no way for reason which is focusing on the finite to connect to something infinite, and so he comes to this notion that faith is what it takes—that you have to believe, essentially, in something. And so, uh, part of it could be my own lack of fully understanding his his arguments, um, but nonetheless, he was essentially saying you're not going to get through it through reason to figure out that there's something bigger because that's focusing on these finite things, and we're talking about something infinite. And there's a way that he's talking almost as if in some Eastern thought possibly, but we are all part of God or we are all God. We're all part of the universe in some way. And that itself might have some meaning or significance and gives him some sense of calm. Uh, he ends the book t- sharing this dream that he has. So he says he writes a few, there's many chapters in the book, but then he says that he Wrote the above three years ago, but then he says as he was rereading his material, he had this dream, which, um, you know, uh, dreams can be interpreted in many ways. He doesn't go on to interpret the dream, but he's sharing how, in this dream, he is laying on this type of bed, not quite a, a bed, but he's lying down and he's not really comfortable, and he's it's very awkward type of position. And then he tries to move his legs, and but then he realizes he's making things worse and there's this way where he almost feels that he's he might fall he's actually not quite sure why he's not falling Um, and then he looks down and he sees that it's this bottomless abyss and it's just going down and down and so is this some kind of this existential crisis or this negative view of life or that everything is meaningless or goes towards death and so he feels like he's almost slipping and he's going to go into this deep abyss but then he looks up And as he looks upwards he sees it's also an abyss basically this endless sky above him and so he says that the infinity below repels and frightens me the infinity above attracts and reassures me and so he's hanging over this abyss and he's not sure why he has not slipped down to the 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 abyss below him how am i still standing or you know lying here and then he realizes he's being supported by something below him now it makes sense to him he says it's in a dream sometimes things kind of change or you're not sure why but then it makes sense but he now can see why there's something below him and to the way i read it it said there is a single support and when i look up i am lying on it in a position of secure balance and that that it alone gave me support and so The way I read that is when he says, when I look above, it's that if he's focusing on this positive abyss or this upward abyss, whether you want to call that God or something greater, he then feels in balance and in support. And that is in some ways like the meaning of life or gives meaning to life when he has that. And he says that he basically um, is feeling this tranquil feeling and that feels that he's now has no, he can, he's not going to fall. He's not worried about falling anymore. And then he wakes up. That's essentially his dream. So um, as I said, to me, it's not the, I, I feel like there's a clear conclusion from that. Um, but again, interesting, this theme of looking for meaning in life comes up in all the books that I I discussed. Uh, I do think the sense of when we look at the, the finite or that our life ends, now whether you believe in some kind of afterlife or not has its own, that's a personal belief and relates to faith, something that he discusses in the book. But I do think that one way we can give meaning to life is when we do something that has a purpose, that Ikigai that it was in the previous book, but something that then impacts the world in a positive way, that impact carries forward and is in a way, now can we say it's infinite? We don't know how long the human species will continue and how that will continue, but if it's something positive then that does continue. Of course, having children, I think, gives people that sense too, that somehow they are continuing. Um, but to me, even just having that positive impact in the world, and I talk about this often, the not your name as a legacy, but your impact as a legacy, because who cares if they're saying your name 500 years from now, you won't be there to experience it. But what you do and the impact that has, that, should be, that can be your legacy and give your life some purpose and meaning. Of course, these are some huge existential philosophical questions that um really can uh would involve a lot of deep analysis to get even further into but uh of course interesting to hear leo tolstoy one of the greatest thinkers of the past few centuries sharing his own existential crisis and how he got through it and what he experienced all right that brings us to the end of tonight's show nice to be back with you all and as always a big thank you to Farhude here in the studio You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Zan Zendegi Azadi.